Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Marianne, Episode 3 and Episode 4. I had hoped that there would be some notable degree of improvement in Episodes 3 and 4 of Marianne, and while there's certainly plot progression and a few notable moments of horror, I am still not largely impressed with this story. My halfway through too early to pass a verdict opinion is that this would have made for a pretty awesome horror novel, but that this is not a really well done horror show. I don't even think it could be reasonably cut down into like a good horror movie. While there are definitely more than enough scary moments here to make up a properly frightening film, these moments do not tend to coincide with the plot of the story. In order to cut down this show into something that would fit into an hour or maybe a two hour movie, the plot would have to be significantly trimmed, meaning that most of the scariest stuff would be left on the cutting room floor, and a lot of the cringier bits I think would have to stay in in order for the show to still make sense. So let's get into this recap. Episode 3, titled Not an Easy Person, opens with a quote from Michel de Montaigne, a 16th century French philosopher. The quote translated into English reads in its entirety, it should be noted that the games of children are not games and must be considered as their most serious actions. The show only uses a segment of this quote, the games of children are not games, but either way, the connection to Marianne is obvious, especially when one takes into consideration that unavoidable banner that Netflix insists upon spoiling new viewers with. It's a gathering of what appears to be the shipwrecked kids as young teenagers gathered in a circle. Given the interplay of elements here, the interference of Marianne and all of their lives, and the notion of children's games being serious business, one could be forgiven for assuming that this story is about to take a bit of a cliché turn. Did the shipwrecked gang dredge up Marianne's spirit with some kind of a children's occult ritual and attempt at a seance, a game of Ouija, or some other little scare akin to Bloody Mary? That is my theory at the moment, but I suppose we will see how accurate it turns out to be. Given that spoilerific Netflix banner, I can only assume that at some point in these last four episodes we are going to be doing flashbacks, and hopefully learning more about the origin of Emma and Marianne's connection and the death of Aurora's sister, Lucy. Now, our story resumes as the camera pans over the French seaside. Tonio and his brother are talking about Tonio taking Emma home. Tonio insists that he didn't make any moves on Emma and that he was so in love with her as a child. It's just too complex now to make any moves, and she's a different person than she used to be. From an audience perspective, it's pretty obvious that he's right. Emma, as a teen, was a girl in the midst of turmoil, and as an adult, she is a bundle of maladaptive coping mechanisms and unprocessed trauma. I would say there's absolutely no getting around the fact that Emma is neurodivergent in some capacity. All the signs are there, from the struggle against authority to her obvious predisposition to self-hatred and internal shame to her inability to cope with her emotions beyond the crutch of her alcoholism. Now, there's absolutely no hope of diagnosing her, of course. This could be anything from the autism spectrum to maybe a personality or a mood disorder to something I'm more familiar with, like ADHD or CPTSD. Whatever is going on with her, though, she's not doing well, and though everyone can clearly see this, no one is actually helping her. Anyway, Tonio and Arnaud are pulling up what looks like crab traps, but the traps are empty, and then Tonio finds the dead cows in the water. I'm not gonna lie, it took me a bunch of rewinds to figure out what the fuck I was looking at in this scene. I have no idea why a scene of Tonio finding the cow corpses was necessary, and so I was staring and staring at the thing he was holding when he's like, what's this, for several minutes before I finally realized it's a wet-ass cow tail. I still don't really know why the show felt this scene was necessary, but, but at least I finally figured out what the fuck these guys were freaking out about. 
Now, back at the church, the weirdo preacher has a bizarre moment with a woman from the town who wants to give a confessional. I truly thought this was something much more important than it appears to have been. I was 100% convinced that this was someone putting on a voice because this little old lady's acting sounds so fake, it's completely unbelievable. But no, we see this woman later and apparently she really just is a weirdly overly religious old lady. So me and this show just really aren't on the same page, I guess, about what is and is not a reasonable storytelling choice. The cow corpses, this old lady, I am just consistently baffled by some of the things that they choose to include here. So back at Emma's parents' house, Camille comes outside to find that Emma's mother is just standing in the yard, naked and dirty and bloody, with a thousand-yard stare. She doesn't say anything at first, and they take her inside. They do not, however, call the police for some reason. Not for a while, at least. I swear, sometimes these two act like they are just entirely removed from everything that's going on around them. Not only are they not particularly proactive protagonists, they also aren't especially reactive, either. It's just so strange how a lot of the time their only role in a scene is to helplessly watch other people do things, and it's infuriating when it's a scene in which they really need to be intervening, like Carolyn's suicide, Marianne sawing off Carolyn's mother's arm, or this scene itself. So, from there, Emma's mother locks herself in the bathroom and refuses to come out, and Emma keeps refusing to call the police until finally they have no other choice. The inspector shows up, and he tries to coax Emma's mom into coming out, but Emma's mom refuses to, so long as Emma is there. Emma, she says, has done what she believed was impossible. She has destroyed the indestructible love that a mother is believed to feel for her children. To which I say, Fuck you. If you don't love your child in spite of their fuck-ups, either your kid is on par with Adolf Hitler or like Albert Fish or something, or you are just a piece of shit who should have never had a child in the first place. I am not going to give you guys the same rant that I gave in the last episode, but allow me to just reiterate that a parent's job is to teach their children and to offer grace and forgiveness toward their children's mistakes. Do not take on the job if you're not equipped to do that. Period. Unless Emma literally murdered someone or is like a serial rapist or something like that, I have zero tolerance for her mother's I secretly hate my awful daughter shtick. So now, with Emma clearly on the verge of tears, the inspector asks her to leave while he handles the situation with her mom. And off Emma goes to cope with the trauma that she's just been handed. In spite of Camille's protests, Emma begins drinking. And I would have no judgment here except for the fact that she clearly has a problem at this point. This is clearly, very obviously, an inherently self-harming attempt at coping, and while I don't begrudge anyone some bad days, this has, very blatantly, turned into severe alcoholism. This is a particular moment of crisis for her drinking, yes, but the signs of a larger problem are there, even if this were the first time we had seen her drinking in the show at all. Emma cannot admit to Camille why she is drinking in the first place, despite the fact that Camille obviously knows and would hopefully understand. Emma was just dealt an enormous emotional blow, and she's coping the only way she knows how. And to be perfectly honest, Camille needs to be a bit less judgmental and a bit more clear with Emma about why this behavior isn't acceptable. Emma will literally die from this coping mechanism sooner or later and it will likely ruin her life long before she reaches that point. So with Camille being the closest person to her, someone who is literally paid to help her out and keep her career on track, Camille really should be the one who at least tries to put Emma on the path to getting the therapy she needs. But no, Camille has made it very clear that for some reason she is on the side of Emma's parents, and as this episode will prove, she is not the kind of person that you can rely on in an emotional crisis. 
So Emma gets a call from Sebastian and agrees to come to his house for dinner, and she plans to use him to fuck her pain away, which isn't great, but at least it's better than destroying her internal organs with the long-term effects of alcohol abuse. But as Camille points out, that's not going to work. Sebastian is happily married now, and his wife, who Emma calls a fat cow upon seeing her, is pregnant with his child. And Emma's line about how being pregnant is no excuse for being fat is just truly unforgivable. Drinking to cope is something that I understand. Misogyny and body shaming, on the other hand, there's no excuse here for that shit. Like, what is going on in your brain, girl? Anyway, it turns out that the little boy we saw in the previous episode, the one that Marianne chased away from poking that dead bird, he is Sebastian's stepson, and unfortunately for everyone involved, he's a fan of Emma's books, which means that he's briefly left alone with her. Briefly, but long enough for Emma to needle the poor kid about how Sebastian, quote, replaced his dad and used to fuck her when they were kids. The kid isn't bothered by this, thank goodness, but I'd have been very pleased here if Sophie had gotten the chance to slap the shit out of her for saying that to her child. Like, what the entire fuck is wrong with you? What the fuck does Emma think she's going to gain by saying that kind of shit to a child? There is a significant difference here between what she is doing, right now, and what she apparently did to her mother as a teenager. A teenager saying something shitty to or about their mother is not a big deal. It is literally expected. I'm sorry, but that is how children learn. It is your job as the parent to be tough enough to take it and to give lessons to avoid it in the future. But this, this right now, this is a grown woman making sexual remarks to a child for the sole purpose of hurting his relationship with his parents. That is abuser shit at best and child molester shit at worst. I really wish that Sophie had decked her. After that, dinner, of course, is awkward. Emma's drinking is an obvious problem, but no one is willing to outright say it, and Emma repeatedly insults Sophie at every opportunity. She outright asks if Sophie's fetus is actually Sebastian's, and so I completely excuse the kind of quasi-ableist dig that Sophie gets in as a response. She says that it was clear from a young age that Emma had the kind of burn-the-world-down personality that would either make her a star or an alcoholic or both, and like... Yeah, what you're talking about are the obvious signs of a neurodivergent teen struggling, and that does tend to end in substance abuse. It's not something you should be insulting someone with, but in this moment, Emma really does deserve to be insulted, so I don't know. Later, though, after Emma has apparently drank all of Sebastian and Sophie's wine, Emma corners Sebastian in the garage to try to entice him into an adulterous quickie. He's not having it, especially when she insists that his relationship with his stepson is meaningless, and the stepson in question is now in big trouble. Just as the cows were compelled to throw themselves off a cliff into the sea, a group of five children is now compelled to grab their jump ropes and attempt to hang themselves on the old playground at the lighthouse school. It's thanks to Emma that they find Hugo and the other children in time, but that doesn't change the fact that Emma is too drunk to physically rescue them as they strangle. That is up to Sebastian and Camille alone, and though they get the job done, Camille has reached the end of her patience. It's a bit ridiculous, as there's a very obvious solution to Emma's problems that Camille has just, like, not bothered to try to point Emma toward, despite the fact that managing Emma is very literally Camille's job description. But no, Camille decides that now is finally the time to establish some boundaries. It's the perfect opportunity to point Emma in the direction of substance abuse help and a fucking therapist, 
But no. Camille just calls her toxic and declares this professional relationship over. And when Emma doesn't get out of the car fast enough, she hits her. It's not sympathetic. Emma is clearly in serious crisis, and Camille decides that now is the time to bail. Like, at the very least, a responsible person would hang around for the night to make sure that Emma sobers up without killing herself and then just quit the job in the morning. But no, Doormat Cam Cam has suddenly found her spine, and her body cannot contain both it and empathy at the same time. So off Emma goes in one direction, and off Camille goes in another. And while I do want to say that no one is ever required to help an addict or anyone else in a crisis, I do think it kind of makes her a bad person that she has been enabling Emma under the pretense of helping her this entire time, and now would rather abandon her than actually get her help. The next morning, Emma and her mother have a small moment of reconciliation. Emma's mother tells her that she said what she said because she couldn't hold it in, and that she enjoyed saying it. But she says that she wouldn't change a thing about their relationship, and implies that they'll have years to repair their familial bond, which of course means that they won't. This will, in fact, be the last time they ever speak to each other. And now for another lame-as-fuck comedy interlude. The weirdo from the confessional scene earlier is praying in church when Emma sneaks around stealing shit for a makeshift exorcism, and I really just need this damn show to pick a lane. What are we doing here? Are we doing comedy? Are we doing horror? Adventure? Because this show wants to primarily be horror, except for when it wants to be a comedy, and then there's this honestly really awesome lingering hero shot of Emma with all of her stolen tools preparing to go off and fight Marianne. But like, being a jack-of-all-trades really only works if you can actually perform all of those trades reasonably well, and this show just isn't doing that. It can do the stylish, artful shots part of things, but it can't seem to keep most of its horror scenes from turning silly, and it can't manage to make the comedy interludes properly funny. And I truly just desperately need this show to pick one thing to do it right. If you want to do horror comedy, do horror comedy. If you want to do a quasi-Western hero adventure story, do that. But if you want to do a fucking horror show, stop wasting my time with all of this clownery and get to your spooky-ass point. So... Emma shows up at Carolyn's mom's house and brains Carolyn's mom with this enormous cross right in front of a bunch of witnesses. But because French people are apparently incapable of calling emergency services, no one actually bothers to intervene here, and Emma is given more or less free reign to torture Marianne and Carolyn's mom's body as she sees fit. So out comes the holy water and the comically oversized crucifix, and it's going kind of well for Emma right up until the point at which Marianne bites her. Marianne gets in this dig about Emma being a teenage killer, which, based off of what we learn about Aurora's sister in the next episode, seems to be fairly inaccurate. It sounds as if what actually happened was that there was some kind of an accident involving the little girl and that Emma failed to save her. And while that's awful, she was also a child at the time, was she not? And hey, here's a fun fact. In America, even the cops aren't required to protect or to save people. Seriously, I'm not joking. Look it up. Cases like Castle Rock versus Gonzalez have repeatedly upheld the fact that in America, so-called law enforcement officers can refuse to help you or save you while you're actively dying, kidnapped, or being raped, and that is perfectly legally fine. So why would I hold a teenage girl to a higher standard than the American Supreme Court holds our cops? Anyway... Marianne isn't exactly pleased with being beaten around the head, and she promises Emma retribution while Emma leaves with the job unfinished. Because her dad has been found, and he's still alive but unconscious. She leaves Carolyn's mom tied up in her own living room and heads to the hospital to see her father, and then we get a flashback to the inspector saving Emma's dad. It's not the greatest of moments. Rather than report this crime scene or take any pictures or gather any evidence or anything, the inspector merely starts cutting down the little witch's hex bags that have apparently cursed Emma's father into prostrate, worshipful immobility. 
And when the inspector brings up that there are witnesses to Emma's attack on Caro's mom, Emma just denies it, and the guy does not at all press the issue. Again, it's bad police work. But Emma has got bigger problems right now than Marianne potentially coming after her through the legal system, and that's because Marianne is instead coming after Emma's mom in a fashion a bit more lethal than legal. Emma gets to her parents' home to find that the steps are soaked in someone's blood, and because, once again, apparently French people are physically unable to call their country's equivalent of 911, Emma decides to just go in and see what's up. She doesn't rush, she doesn't panic, she just casually walks past a river of blood to go see who has made this big mess that she will have to clean up. One wonders if perhaps all of the drinking has already caused too much brain damage for her to respond appropriately to situations like these. Once inside, Emma makes things even worse. She finds her mother's corpse lying in an enormous pool of blood, and so what choice does she have but to get her DNA and her footprints all over the crime scene? She literally slips and slides towards her mother's corpse through her mother's blood, destroying evidence and self-incriminating like an utter idiot. And yeah, this is why she shouldn't have gone into the building. Of course, she's not acting rationally in this moment. I don't blame her for that. But that's the very reason she should have waited for the police to enter the building. A, it's an active crime scene. Contaminating it could easily mean being framed. B, it's going to be unimaginably traumatizing to see your mom like that. And you really shouldn't have to carry that memory with you for the rest of your life. And C, the perpetrator might very well still be in the building. And as Marianne's evil giggle quickly assures us, that is very much the case. Emma wanders upstairs, tracking and trailing blood all along the stairs and banister, and Marianne's just up there in the dark, giggling to herself as she lovingly caresses the butcher knife that killed Emma's mom. Emma's acting here is ridiculous. There's practically no emotion on her face, and then she just suddenly lunges at Caroline's mom, and it looks less like an unhinged, desperate attempt at vengeance than like a little boy assaulting a classmate on the playground. It's just really not good, and of course it's as Emma is strangling Caroline's mom that Camille arrives on the heels of her change of heart. Caroline's mother's body slumps over dead, and Camille rushes over to perform CPR because she's truly just up in the fucking clouds at all times. And for once, she gets what she kind of deserves. She's trying to save Caro's mom's life when she gets a jump scare of what Marianne really looks like, and it's so startling to her that she flings herself away from Caro's mom's body and goes tumbling down the stairs. And puts her own dumbass into a coma. I would love to pretend that I feel bad for her here, but I really, really don't. She is far too stupid for my sympathy. So with Camille lying half-dead on the staircase and Caro's mom lying half-dead on the second story, Caro's mom's body contorts as Marianne abandons it. We will discover shortly that Marianne did plenty of damage on her way out, in addition, of course, to the damage that she did in previous episodes and the torture that Emma put her through. Horrifically, and with certain implications considering this bug-eyed thing that Marianne has got going on all too often, Caro's mom's optic nerves were severed when Marianne left her. It could have been worse, I suppose, but then again, Caro's mom has also been framed for murder at this point, so maybe it couldn't have been worse. But now we're on to the next episode. The quote for this one is part of a traditional French children's song that the show credits to a comedian, poet, and playwright named Louis-Francois Nicolet. It's the story of a group of starving sailors who are about to resort to cannibalism in order to survive. They chose one among their number to kill and eat, but his prayers to the Virgin Mary are answered by thousands of fish jumping into the boat so that the sailors don't have to resort to cannibalism after all. I would say that's ominous not so much about anything in-universe as it is for my potential satisfaction with the resolution to this horror story. If the quote here is referencing a folktale involving a deus ex machina, God saves the day ending, is that meant as foreshadowing of a similar ending to Emma's tale? I hope not, because I will absolutely hate that if that's what it turns out to be. So, 
After the brief flashes of recap, the episode opens on the hospital room in which Emma's father and now Camille, for some reason, are both unconscious. Emma is crying on the floor, and she has finally changed her clothes. She's in mourning black, symbolizing how she's changed with the death of her mother. But given the absurdity of wearing the same outfit every day for this entire show so far, I find the symbolism here a bit useless. Anyway, Sebastian shows up at the hospital to take Emma to her mother's funeral, and Emma doesn't want to go, but he makes her. I think it's a good move, and very indicative of his forgiveness, that he is helping her at all is a miracle, given what she did to him, and that he's actually forcing her to care for her life is exactly the kind of friendship that she needs. She doesn't need an enabler like Camille. She needs someone who is going to drag her ass down to her mother's funeral, because if she misses it, it will be just one more secret shame to drink herself to death about. We don't actually see the funeral scene, though. Instead, we jump forward to two hours afterwards, with the surviving shipwreck kids gathered to mourn. Arnaud is like the anti-Sebastian here. While Sebastian is doing the right thing for Emma's health, Arnaud is worse than an enabler. He isn't just helping Emma destroy her life, he's actively pouring her the booze. The look on Sebastian's face makes it clear exactly what he thinks of that, but he says nothing, and Emma listens to her friends chat through a haze. She's hearing them as if they're a world away, and it's a nice bit of artistry after a long line of failed attempts at being artsy. And, noticing Emma's dissociation and tears, her friends pull her into a great big group hug. It's a nice moment, except that I don't really buy it. Emotionally, these people are all extremely distant, and while Crisis does indeed bring people together, I don't know that it would really be enough to put Emma at the center of this loving embrace, after all that she has supposedly done to burn her Elden Bridges. Anyway, Aurora tried to make Emma's mother's stuffed tomato recipe, except she fucked it up pretty badly, and they wind up getting takeout instead. All in all, it's a pleasant little bonding experience for the group, and Emma does a good job of pretending to keep it together, but she's not really okay. She goes into the bathroom, pretends to take a shower, and gets drunk off of hidden booze. And when you're drinking hidden bathroom booze, yeah, honey, you've got a problem. Let someone help you. So now, needing to fake having taken a shower, Emma wets her face and her hair in the sink and then looks up to find the word right traced into the fog on the mirror. Then the doorbell rings. It's the inspector, Samuel, and he's there to pick Emma up for some reason he doesn't seem to want to admit to. Arnaud gives him a hard time, which seems unjustified, until Samuel reveals that he literally forgot today was the day of Emma's mother's funeral. As the conversation unfolds, though, the truth comes out. Caro's mom is finally awake. She's no longer possessed by Marianne, but Marianne stole her eyes on the way out, and she apparently has something important that she needs to tell Emma. So off they go to the police station. Caro's mom shares her story. She's sorry for what happened to Emma's mom and obviously devastated over the death of her daughter, not to mention fairly sure that Marianne did something to her own husband. Apparently, Marianne possessed her one day while she was near the water, if I'm understanding her correctly, and Caro's mom says something about seeing a city. And I have no idea what she's talking about on that front. Worse, she claims that God won't forgive her for what happened, and I've gotta say, if your deity of choice will punish you for being victimized by a fucking demon, he's a piece of shit. Try worshipping something else if you must, but don't worship that jackass anymore. Anyway, Carolyn's mom claims that Emma isn't cursed the way that she is, and that Emma is the one who brought Marianne back, because they are intrinsically linked somehow, and while Marianne is no longer in Carolyn's mom's body, she is still somewhere in Eldon, and Carol's mom begs Emma to write lest Marianne turns Emma's life into a nightmare the way she's done to Carol's mom. And I've gotta say, nightmare is a pretty fucking mild word for what's happened to Carol's family, but okay. Outside the police station, Emma and Samuel agree to a little alliance of sorts, with Samuel insisting that he indeed believes in all this supernatural nonsense now, with little evidence, if I'm being perfectly honest. He makes Emma promise to stay at home and not to write, and she does promise, but it's not like she's a particularly trustworthy person, is it? 
Now, on to Caro's mother's house. The inspector is there with a couple other cops, and they break down that sealed door. Like I suspected, Caro's father is trapped inside. To my surprise, though, he's still alive. He's been imprisoned by one of those hex bags, and after poking around for clues, Samuel starts cutting the bags down to free Philip from his paralysis. As usual, the police work here is nonsense. Samuel is at least wearing gloves, which I suppose is something, but the two other jackasses just stand around doing nothing when they should at least be snapping crime scene photos and shit before Samuel starts dismantling everything. But no, we're doing supernatural religious mumbo-jumbo, and so of course proper police work does not matter. And in case I'm not interjecting enough derision into my tone, allow me to make myself quite clear. I hate this attitude. This shit is harmful in fiction because it bleeds into reality. This is the same attitude that begets satanic panic-style brainless investigation that doesn't care about evidence or the justice system, and fucks up actual cases and ruins actual lives. For the love of whatever gods you please, do whatever spiritual religious nonsense you feel the story needs. But write a proper investigation, too. No one ever does, and at this point, I'm begging. So, next, Samuel takes his evidence back to his friend from before, the one he showed the hex bag to. Apparently, the guy's life has fallen apart since then, and so he doesn't want anything to do with Samuel's new evidence. But Sam is persistent, and Pat eventually gives in. He tells Sam that the book Sam found in Marianne's secret murder room is written in an unnamed, indecipherable ancient demon language, the existence of which alone is an insult to the Abrahamic god. Pat tells Sam to check the church for information about this language in old witch trial records, and Pat stresses that whoever is using that language, be they a witch or otherwise, they must never be obeyed. And the only tool that you can use against a bean like that is its name. And I've got to admit, the whole true name thing is a trope that I enjoy. It's an extremely ancient one as well, dating all the way back to at least ancient Egyptian mythology, and of course it also shows up in Abrahamic mythology. If you're not familiar with the trope, you need only look so far as the old fairy tale Rumpelstiltskin as a primer. Knowing a bean's name grants one power over it, or can free you from that bean's power. In Rumpelstiltskin, it's discovering the titular entity's name that allows the female character to free herself and her firstborn child from her bargain, and this is seen often in both mythology, folklore, and modern fantasy. I know it shows up in a bunch in the Dresden Files, series, for instance, but it's extremely common in fantasy novels in general. And though I haven't read the book myself, I want to give a quick shout-out to Joanne M. Harris's The Gospel of Loki, which apparently contains the line, a named thing is a tamed thing, and my, but that is a phenomenal line on the subject. Anyway, like I said, the true name gives you power thing is a trope that I enjoy, and I look forward to seeing how it works out here in regards to the other name rule we've established in this universe. That a creature like Marianne cannot lie when you ask her identity. She can avoid the question, she can refuse to answer, but she cannot lie. And if knowing a name grants you power, being unable to lie about what your name is has got to be a huge handicap. So from there, our next scene finds the priest returning to the church with a big ol' shovel in hand. What he was using it for? Who knows? But the show draws attention to it, which means that it's important. More pressing, though, is what the priest finds in the church. That being Samuel, who is in the process of stealing the witch trial records so that he can try to decipher Marianne's demonic chicken scratch. The priest fully intends to assault Samuel in order to get the documents back, claiming that the assault wouldn't be a sin because it would be for God, and I really wish Samuel had punched this asshole in the face on his way out of the church. But at least he didn't get his head bashed in with a shovel by a self-righteous Bible thumper, so I suppose that's all I can really ask for. Now, back to Pat. He gives Samuel yet another occult book and reveals that the seal Marianne has got is of a demon named Beleth, who is presumably her husband. Apparently, he's named here as a demon king and, like, 
Aren't they always? Aren't they always a king or a prince or a duke or some shit? Is there a single fucking one of them that doesn't have some kind of a title? It's honestly hilarious, and I would say there's a hilarious extrapolation one can make there from the events of Paradise Lost. It's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, and apparently hell just hands out peerage like it's candy. Honestly, you'd think those sovereign citizen lunatics would love hell if that were the case. We are each a nation, after all. And yes, I am inordinately proud of that very stupid joke I just made. Anyway, Pat has just got this feeling that he's never going to see Samuel again, which probably spells the end of one or both of them in the near future. Since Samuel is perhaps the least objectionable character in the story at this moment, I'm going to hope that it's Pat who gets it instead of Sam, but, well, I can't pretend that I'll be surprised if this season sees Sam dead before its ending. Now back to Emma. She's dreaming, though that's not immediately clear. In her dream, she gets called to the hospital for the birth of Sebastian and Sophie's baby, and honestly, the depiction of investigation in this show is such shite that I was genuinely worried for a large portion of this scene that they were actually trying to pass this huge crowd in the delivery room off as a normal part of the labor experience. All of the shipwreck kids are there to watch Sophie give birth. Not to a baby, but to a cold black-skinned demon that puts Melisandre's kids to fucking shame. And then Emma wakes up to find that Sophie really is having her baby. Thankfully, this depiction of the birth is far more reasonable. The parents' collection of random friends are not actually allowed in the delivery room, which doesn't work for Emma, who is panicking and desperate to warn Sebi that something awful is about to happen. She is lucky that Aurora and Arnaud are there to stop her from barging in, though, because nothing's actually wrong. Sophie and Sebastian's son is born perfectly happy and healthy, and we're doing group hugs once again. Elsewhere in Elden, Samuel starts coming through the Molitor report on the witch trial against Marianne. It's a whole thing about how she survived a fire as a child alongside only her pet cat and presumed familiar Maturin, and I'm not gonna lie, I had no idea that Maturin was a real French name. I literally thought that Stephen King made that shit the fuck up. So anyway, Marianne went on to be raised in a convent where she was the only one alongside Maturin to survive a plague outbreak. After she marries, she gives birth to a child who burns to death when they're only a few months old. To replace this child, she and her husband have two more, who mysteriously disappear in the woods one solstice night. Sometime after that, Marianne slits her husband's throat and traded his dead ass in for a demon. In the end, though, Marianne gets hanged for her supposed witchcraft and curses the people of Elden with her last words. The story is told via this fun little illustrated storybook style, and it's not exactly on par with the Deathly Hollows sequence, but it's kind of similar and almost as fun. Now, back at the hospital, Emma is talking to her comatose father when Aurora comes in for a visit. It's here that we get the reveal of who Emma supposedly killed as a child. Fifteen years ago, something happened to Aurora's sister Lucy that apparently could be blamed in some capacity on Emma. We still don't know exactly what happened, but I'm holding at present to the assertion that it probably wasn't actually Emma's fault. And Aurora goes on to tell Emma the story of how she and her mother once went to a medium that actually contacted Lucy for them and could genuinely prove it, supposedly. Lucy's spirit said that she was fine as she was, and apparently that helped them heal. So too did Emma's parents after it happened. They were over at Aurora's place all the time, cooking and doing chores and helping to ease the burden of having lost a daughter. Given that Emma apparently did not know this, one assumes then that Emma ran away after whatever happened to Lucy, perhaps because she feared facing the consequences of whatever did happen, which might imply that it's more her fault than I realize. So that night, Emma wakes to the sound of someone screaming her name. Now this, I've gotta say, is a truly lovely little horror sequence. To the front left of Emma's bed, from her perspective, is a closed closet door. To the front right, though, is a mirror aligned to reflect the closet door back at Emma. The closet door, as I've said, is closed in reality, but its reflection in the mirror 
that's another story. In the mirror, the closet door is open, and Emma looks back and forth between these two realities, trying to reconcile them. And then a gnarled hand emerges from the open closet door while the real closet door is still closed. And with the real closet still entirely shut, out comes the unmistakable specter of Marianne. Back to the real closet, which is still closed. Back to the reflected closet, which is now ghostless. Back to the real closet, before which stands Marianne, who reaches out and grabs Emma by the head. Cut to the hole in the ground. Cut to Tonio at the wharf. Someone is running up behind him in the dark, their wet, thumping footsteps giving their presence away. But every time Tonio turns around to see who's behind him, no one is there. Luckily, he takes this warning as a sign to get away from the edge of the water. One imagines he would have been as well off as those drowned cows if he'd stayed put. But as he walks back to the water, it appears that his luck might have just run out. Marianne appears behind him, arms outstretched, and there's no telling what, if anything, she did to him. It's a mystery for the next episode to solve, I suppose, but I won't be surprised at all if we never see Tonio alive again. Or worse, if the next time we see Tonio, he's possessed. Because now that Marianne has come for Emma and for Tonio, we're on to the next shipwreck kid. Aurora is scared awake by the sound of her dead baby sister's voice and a thumping beneath her bed. Like an idiot, Aurora leans down to see what's going on down there, and she has a bizarre little chat with her dead sister who clearly isn't actually her sister. Lucy blames her death on Emma and Aurora, and then, smiling beneath the bed, she tells Aurora that she's not under the bed anymore, and a hand grabs Aurora by the head. It's a pretty nice little horror moment, though the eeriness of the monster under your bed telling you that they're not under the bed anymore is leagues scarier than the jump scare of Aurora being grabbed. Still, I mean it. This show can pull off proper scares when it wants to, so can we please, I beg of you, dispense with the periodic comedy routines? Just do the horror and do it right. There is clearly a wealth of talent here. But now we're back to the hospital. There is a nurse at the surveillance system, but the cameras keep fritzing out. It's not the kind of thing that would strike anyone as ominous, it just looks like buggy tech, but it's clearly not. There's a female figure wandering around, and I have no idea who this woman is. Camille, perhaps? It's not Emma or Sophie, given the hair, but the last we see of this woman is her standing over Sophie and Sebastian's baby. And when the cameras come back on and Sebastian and the nurse reach the baby's room, the baby is gone, replaced in its cradle by another hex bag. Of everything the shipwreck kids have endured tonight, Sebastian is now suffering by far the worst. So, I am sticking to my assessment that if this were a book, I think I would have really enjoyed it. There is a certain cringe factor that can be brought into a narrative by bad acting, and acting, even if it's mediocre and not outright bad, can really emphasize poor dialogue. Dialogue that you maybe wouldn't notice isn't great if it were written rather than performed. And I feel like that's some of what is happening here for me. I think that certain scenes in this show, scenes that are coming across as kind of silly and useless on screen, might have come across better if they were for a reading audience rather than a viewing audience. Certain tonal whiplash might have been easier to handle in written form. I think that including the visual element, especially including the element of the yakety sax level musical choices, that's a nightmare. There are many instances throughout this show so far where I just had to sit back and go, why have you done what you've just done? And I think reading the story instead of watching it would have helped to mask some of that. Reading is heavily imaginative, and written storytelling relies a lot on the reader to participate in the experience, and I think in this case, my imagination would have interpreted this story as far less silly than it's being presented here. So I do think I would have preferred this story in book form. Though I will also say that over the course of this episode, I have given a bit of consideration to whether it might have been better to cut down this story into a short movie. Now, I don't really think that it would work as one single film, like I said at the beginning of this, but maybe it might have worked better as a film duology? 
do like a first movie that ends with the defeat of Caro's mom and then a second film dealing with whatever happens in the back half of this show. I think that way this story could be edited down into two serviceable horror films. Not great ones, sure, but maybe mediocre ones. Cutting it down from an eight-episode show into two movies of reasonable length, I think, would have allowed for some extra edits to be made, hopefully resulting in some of the sillier shit getting left on the cutting room floor. Less is more, a lot of the time, I guess is what I'm saying. So yeah, that's my assessment so far. I am now halfway through Marianne, and I'm going to be spending the next two days finishing up this series. As soon as I finish this recording, I'm going to be sitting down to watch the next two episodes, and I will do the final two tomorrow, and I am hoping that the back half of this show is going to be an improvement upon the first half. But with Caro's mom apparently no longer being a factor, and certainly no longer playing Marianne, what I'm going to need from the narrative at this point is for the backstory to really step up and knock it out of the park. Because I'm sure that at some point in these four episodes we're going to be doing flashbacks, and I hope they're phenomenal because what's happening in the present is not. And again, without the actress playing Caro's mom as the villain, I really wonder how this is going to evolve. Anyway, with all of that said, I suppose that concludes my coverage of episodes three and four. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice, that would be very much appreciated. If you are interested in helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching and covering next, $1 patrons get access to polls helping to determine what it is that I'm going to be watching in the future. And of course, $5 patrons get access to all of my reaction videos, including for Marianne, Squid Game, Midnight Mass, Bly Manor, Umbrella Academy, and plenty more. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will be back with me next week when I cover Marianne episodes 5 and 6. And when the cameras come back on and Sebastian and the Nurch... Nurch? What's a Nurch?